0: I think most of you realize that this is probably one of Jesus' most well known stories and that it's had enormous impact through the centuries. This is um, Rembrandt's rendering of that. I want to suggest to you that from that story, there are three major worldviews the son, the prodigal son, or the younger son who goes off to the city and spends all of his inheritance, right? And you know, it was quite serious. I don't know if you realize when he asked for his inheritance, he was saying to his father, essentially, I wish you were dead.
1: Hey, welcome to Night Church, the Friday evening service of Praxis, the young adult ministry of the Loma Linda University Church. You're going to be hearing some great sermons, testimonies on this podcast that are going to encourage and deepen your faith. We are so excited that you're here. And I hope you enjoy this sermon, and so much so that you share it with someone that you love. Welcome. Welcome, welcome back again on the stage. Kelly, good to see you. Good to see you. Long time no see. Long time no see. Well, tonight we want to invite some of our panelists who are going to be here on the stage. And tonight I'm really excited. We have with us three of my really incredible friends and in so many ways also really landmark human beings who have blessed not only this campus but in La Sierra and our medical center. And so I want to start off by just introducing who we have, and then Kelly's going to actually share a little bit that we want you to be involved with this evening, and maybe even online if you're watching, we want to welcome you as well. So to my right here, we have Dr. Alyssa Keto. She is both a professor and the director for the research base that's there in La Sierra University that is for the education of K-12 through students. She has quite a long repertoire on her resume that carries all kinds of rewards, uh, influential impacts that she's made on our community, even documentary films being made on Adventist Education. And so it is really an honor to have you here tonight.
0: Thank you very much. And you know, when you get to be as old as I am, you can accumulate awards. (laughs) Most of you aren't at that stage yet, so.
1: And to her right is also Dr. Keto, uh, Dr. Dan Keto. He is one of our famed professors here of medicine at the Loma Linda University Medical Center. He was a chair. He was uh, awarded in Harvard and here in Loma Linda and in PUC and all kinds of incredible things that God has blessed him with to be able to be Uh, A conduit of leadership and teaching for our up-and-coming radiology uh, residents and soon-to-be attendings, one of which happens to be my wife. (laughs) And so I am very, very uh, grateful to have him on the stage here tonight. But he is also here particularly, and his wife, uh, because of the subject matter that we're going to be covering. And so we're really excited about that. And then last but definitely not least, my good friend and colleague in ministry, Pastor Miguel Mendez. He is truly a man of academia, of books. He's also a man of God in a big way. He's the study pastor here at the Loma Linda University Church. He kind of shepherds our community in so many different aspects. uh, Big time up front in preaching and the Sabbath school lesson, but also in baptisms and Bible studies and also helping with discipleship in so many ways. But he's also an academic. He's working on his doctorate. He'll be soon finishing, and his doctorate material particularly is relevant to this evening's conversation, which is going to be on the topic of ethics and our moral compass. How do we know? And so just to introduce one last thing and a very unique thing is that Dr. Keto has written a book about choices and morality in the sense of how do we make choices wisely? And we have brought also his wife on stage because she is an educator who's been working with soon-to-be teachers, but also been working on this topic of neuroplasticity and how we know, and they've been working on actually this work on choice and how we choose for a long time. They've written, well, Dr. Kito, uh, Dan Keto has written a book, which some of you will be lucky enough to get, and I'll explain a little bit later, how some of you might have gotten this already and you don't even know.
2: Exciting. Um, and just to introduce myself, I'm Kelly. I am the intern pastor here for Praxis. I'm sorry. I totally didn't. This do is it. my colleague wow. Philip. He's he's a pastor here um, at Praxis Ministry. We'd like to welcome you and thank you so much for spending your evening here with us. So great to have you guys all here.
1: You're really not an intern. You're so good, <laughs> Kelly. Amazing. <laughs> I'm Amazing.
2: an intern. Yeah, I'm for um so One fun thing that we want to get you guys involved in is to comment or question on the things that we are discussing. To do so, our lovely media team has set this really beautiful QR code. And hopefully that microphone's not in the way, but if you scan it, you can, yeah, everyone please scan it right now. I see all your phones. It looks like you're taking photos of me, but you're not. Um, But if you could just scan this, you'll go to a Google Form, and. As you respond to it, we will be getting texts live from your comments and your questions for whatever we're discussing up here. So we really want you guys to be involved in this as well, as much as we are involved in this conversation.
1: So to start us off this evening, we're going to have Pastor Miguel share with us kind of how we define ethics and moral compass. And then... We're gonna jump into a really interesting illustration, also to kind of set the foundation, uh, by Alyssa. I think we're gonna to have to name you both, Alyssa and Dan, for this evening. Forgive us for not giving you the title, but then we're gonna say Dr. Keto, and we're gonna we're not gonna know which one. So, thank you, Phil. Um, just a little note. Uh, I see some people
3: standing. It's okay. You there are spaces here up front. Maybe you're trying to decide if this conversation is for you and that's why you're standing. If that's the case, make your first ethical decision today and come and sit down. So I I was talking to Dan um, backstage, and it was really interesting because we come at at the subject matter from different places. And now I feel kind of sheepish of giving you my definition of ethics because Dr. Dan here was telling me, yeah, but but you know, these kids don't think like that. So here's my attempt at giving you a working definition of ethics. The best one I have um, isn't really mine. I have to give credit to probably the person who wrote the best treatise on ethics in antiquity, and that's Aristotle. Aristotle has a beautiful little thin book called the Nicomachean Ethics. And in it, Aristotle says that the purpose of ethics, the purpose of decision-making is for you to have happiness. Now for Aristotle, happiness doesn't come as the absence of pain. So for Aristotle, pain is pain and suffering and privation. Those are all part of your happiness. So the, the Purpose of ethics is to teach you how to feel pleasure or pain to the, uh, towards the right things in the right moment. For example, last season, uh, we, I don't know if you know, but us on the pastoral team, we, we love football. And for some reason, part of being part of this church is coming from Texas it should tell you something that most Texans wanna leave Texas and come to California, um, but we have so many Texans on our team, and so all these Texas come Texans come with a really obnoxious preferences, and so we have a bunch of them who are cowboy fans. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. So so those those three people back there that clap, that is the wrong ethical decision to make tonight because you're not in Texas. And so when the Cowboys lose again and have another disappointing season again, as has been the case for the past 20 years, I feel a deep amount of pleasure. My colleagues on staff feel a great amount of pain. And so Aristotle would say that both the pleasure I feel at their inability to win and my colleagues' pain at realizing that their team is terrible are both part and parcel of your ethical journey. So to summarize, Ethics is simply your journey towards happiness, which you achieve by experiencing pleasure and pain in the right moment and towards the right things. Mm.
1: Wow, wow. Now, a lot of this is predicated on the fact that in a postmodern, pluralistic, very relative society, we all might share different ethics, wouldn't you say, in that sense, to some degree? Maybe, no, wait, don't start the discussion yet. Don't don't go anywhere. (laughs) I'm not going to ask you to respond to that. But that's how I would pose our evening tonight and how we're going to kind of figure out how do we set a foundation in this type of a society where we can all find some form of agreement or at least have an amiable and meaningful discussion while someone's a believer and someone might not be. So what do we talk about some of the issues that we have this evening, but to set the pace for that, we have to really set it up through this lens of worldview. And so we want to start off with a really important illustration that Alyssa is gonna share with us this evening. Um, will
0: my slides come up here? May I stand up? Yeah. Okay. Um, I have to stand so I can see the slides and somebody is going to kindly cue them up for me. So I'd like to begin with a story and um, It's a very interesting story, but it was written by an American, not but, it was written by an American (laughs) (laughs) in in about 1882. Has anybody ever read this short story? I see, oh no, okay, one person, two, wait, could you you put your hands up again? I see one person, are you an English major? two Two, okay, are you English majors? or you had a very good English teacher, or you did it on your own. You can't answer that, probably. But anyway, you, you'll know this, and just go along with me. So here's the story, The Lady or the Tiger. And it's by Frank Stockton. Now, um, in a galaxy far, far away, <laughs> there lived a king, a ruler. and. He was semi-barbaric. Now this is an important clue because you're gonna have to make a decision, a choice later on, but he was semi-barbaric and this is the, th- that's uh, Frank Stockton's term. And this king had an unusual way to practice justice. He built a large stadium this one looks kind of oldish, but that's you know when, when it was. He built a large stadium in which, when there was a sufficient crime, or supposed crime, that came to his attention, he would say, we're going to have a day in the stadium. And so the accused, excuse me, the accused would be put underneath where he was sitting, and at the proper time, a door would open and the accused would come out he would bow to the king and then he would walk to the other side of the stadium and choose one of two doors. Now, depending on that day, what depend, he had a choice, 50-50. Out of one door came the fiercest tiger you can imagine. And um, <clears throat> you can imagine what might have happened to the accused if he chose that door. Now, if he chose the other door, a beautiful young, or not so young maybe, a woman would come out. No, the king was very careful about matching. He didn't want this person to go home, married to someone who wasn't about his age, you know? And so um, a beautiful woman would come forth. Now, this was a big deal because um, it was entertainment for the entire, village or town, and people who couldn't get into the stadium could tell from the audience's response and by the particular bells that were ringing, what happened. So if you heard this dark, doomy clanging of bells, they all felt sorry for the accused who was eaten by the tiger. On the other hand, if they heard this very tinkling, cheery, um, what would be a good word, music majors, for, for bells that are happy sounding? What? Uh, oh yes, they were melodious too, <laughs> yes, <laughs> it was melodious. They'd all be thrilled. Now, um, the king believed in chance so this was his form of justice. It was chance, right? 50-50. Now, one day, that it came to the king's attention that his daughter, the princess, was in love with someone. And he didn't know about this. And it turns out that the person he's, I should hold this like this. The person the princess fell in, has fallen in love with is, in fact, a commoner. Now, he's a commoner, but he's also the best fighter in the realm, extremely handsome, brave, and strong. But that doesn't make any difference because he doesn't have the king's approval. And so the king immediately calls for a day in the stadium. Now, as you can imagine, the princess is quite upset about this. And I forgot to tell you that the princess is also semi-barbaric. Now, when you think about that... Most
3: princesses are.
0: Yeah. (laughs) When you think about that adjective, you might want to say, well, you know, what does that involve? Semi-barbaric. She was quite a bit like her father, in fact. A lot prettier, but like (laughs) her father. And so imagine when uh, her lover is going to have to go through this 50-50 chance in the stadium. Um, Do any of you want to guess what she does? You have a 50-50 chance (laughs) of getting it right. Because do you know that most of our choices are 50-50? This is a statistical thing, that most of our choices are 50-50. Isn't that a kind of a horrible thing to think about? Well, anyway, um, you're right, the princess, because she is clever, smart, semi-barbaric, and very (laughs) in love with this young man, finds out which door holds the tiger and which door holds the young woman. Oh. Yes, oh, Phil goes, oh. Now, the thing is, the young woman, oh, somebody's very nicely getting my slides up there. Very good. the the young woman who was chosen to be the reward if the right door is selected is one of the most beautiful maidens in the realm. And in fact, the princess knows about this young woman. She might even be a little jealous of her because she has seen this young woman speaking to her lover briefly you know, so, uh-oh, I see somebody up here shaking their head like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so, you know, a little jealousy, uh, she experiences a little je- Well, I wouldn't say a little jealousy. She experiences jealousy, period. So now the question is, what can she do about it? Can she alter the outcome? And so the day arrives and uh, the door underneath the king is opened, and uh, her lover comes out, and he turns toward the, the king. Now, all the eyes are on the lover, except his are on the eyes of whom? Who is he looking at? He's looking at the princess, yes. Who's this young woman in the front here who has all the answers? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I want her in my class. <laughs> he knows that she has found out the answer okay and when they look eye to eye he's absolutely sure he has the answer she has the answer and um, with the slightest raising of her right hand she points toward the right door and no one sees it except for the young her lover because everybody's eyes are on on him right and so he turns around, and he goes to the two doors as you see there. And um, what happens? Um, My nice, uh, we could go forward. Oh, go back. (laughs) Okay, so um, the question is, does the tiger come out of the door on the right, or does the young woman come out with the door on the right? On the yes, on the right. Now, I, I left out another detail, and that is if the young woman or the woman comes out, immediately a priest comes out with maidens and all kinds of things and trumpets, and he's married there on the spot. Doesn't matter if he's been if he's married or whatever. He's married there on the spot. Oh, okay? Yes, so <laughs> this is um, the justice of the semi-barbaric. King who believes in this chance thing, 50-50. So now the question is, to you, I've left out a lot of details, but we don't have time for all of those, but I think I've given you some critical ones. The question now is, when she lifts her hand and she points very slightly to the right door, is she, who is going to come out, what, what or who will come out of that door? Oh, I hear some the tiger and I hear some the princess. And
3: those uh, who said the tiger, that's why y'all are single, man.
0: <laughs> <laughs> could do you think I could have a, a show of are you willing to raise your hand on this? Okay, tiger. Oh, wow. oh my, look at that. <laughs> oh boy. Okay. Uh woman, They're all beautiful barbaric. beautiful woman. Oh, that that's tells me Wow, okay. Now, um, you are assuming that you know a lot more about the princess, right? Right? So that you can predict what choice she's going to make. And I'm going to tell you, yes, you could. We could predict if we knew what her worldview was. Was. And so let's go to that. Okay, no, skip, um, uh, go back. Oh, this is all right. Um, Please go forward. Okay, so here we are with worldview. So what is worldview? Okay. (laughs) It's a set of beliefs or ideas and attitudes that govern everything you do, every decision you make, every behavior you engage in, just everything you do. That's worldview. Okay? So that's pretty important, isn't it? Think for a moment, if we really knew the worldview of the princess, could we predict her decision, her choice? Okay, we're saying yes. Okay, forward. Ooh, all right. So how many worldviews, major worldviews are there? Many of you are in um, university, graduate school, professional school. Every discipline has its own set of worldviews. But when I talk worldview, I'm talking about a general kind of worldview that all of us would have. So I want to suggest to you a story from where we can get three worldviews. And all of you, I I think, know the story. Forward, please. Okay, here's Rembrandt's painting of the story of the return of the prodigal son. Now, we don't have time to review that story, but I think most of you realize that this is probably one of Jesus' most well-known stories and that it's had enormous impact through the centuries. This is um, Rembrandt's rendering of that. I want to suggest to you that from that story, there are three major worldviews, and we could go forward. Okay. Go back. <laughs> who's, do, who's doing this for me? Thank you very much.
3: You got a 50 50 chance. Yeah, of right. It right.
0: <laughs> That's for sure. Okay, from, from this story, um, you can get three major worldviews the son, the prodigal son, or the younger son who goes off to the city and spends all of his inheritance, right? And you know, it was quite serious. I don't know if you realize when. He asked for his inheritance. He was saying to his father, essentially, I wish you were dead, mm-hmm. because he ne- you, you never in those days got an inheritance until you know, your father had passed away. So he's saying, I wish you were dead, give me my inheritance. So that's the, the younger brother. The older brother okay, stays and does all the work right, and follows his father's orders. And then there's the father who, after the son leaves, is waiting and watching every day for his son to return. So you have the younger son who has based his decisions on feelings, okay? The older son who bases his decisions on what? Rules, okay? And then there's the father who is always thinking about the other person his younger son who's gone away, his older son who was with him. So here we're suggesting that there are three major view- worldviews that come out of that story. Me, feelings first, rules first, others first. Okay, now we can go forward. So can anybody identify this city? Florence. Okay, how many of you have been to Florence? Okay, and some of you are going to Florence, I think, <laughs> soon. All right. What was so important that happened in this city of Florence? Okay, I'm sure you all, most of you know the answer, but let me help you. It's the cradle of the Renaissance. This is where the Renaissance took place. And from that time forward.
2: I think. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, From that time came the concept of humanism, all right? So the things switched from looking, thinking about God or about, I don't want to say spiritual things, but religious things, to now there was a focus on me, correct? Can you see that slide all right? All right, so from it, the focus on man, hence the term humanism, and from humanism, we have the Enlightenment. And now, the Enlightenment, two things happen. They start reasoning with God or without God. And without God ends up with the evolutionary theory. Okay? So let's go forward one. Now, Out of humanism comes this fourth worldview that we don't see in the return of the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son, and that is a me first. Do you see how me first came about? Okay, once the focus was on humans, on me, then we have another worldview here. And I'm gonna suggest that these are the things that a me first person is interested in. Money, power, and who gets the woman. And there's also, therefore, also the int- the survival of the fittest. So the evolutionary theory is, is very strong here. So now we have three, four world views. Could we go forward, please? So you have feelings first, you have rules first, you have me first, and you have others first. Now think about the princess. Where does she fall? and these worldviews. Those of you who said the tiger came out of the door, what, what were you saying, what, what worldview were you ascribing to the princess? Me first. Me first or feelings first? Yeah. What? I think
1: me first. Probably.
0: Me first, okay. How many, how many are with me first? How many feelings first? Okay, you gotta, you've gotta think about that semi-barbaric, you know? I think that comes into play in, in this one. Okay, so these are the four basic, I don't wanna, maybe basic is not the right word, four major worldviews, feelings first, rules first, me first, and others first. Could we go forward? So we've already talked about this, what did the princess decide? Now, what do you think Frank Stockton said happened at the end of the story? Was it the, was it the tiger or was it the, the woman? Aha, the? Uh-huh. okay. Do you know what Frank Stockton leaves it up to us to decide? Oh, he doesn't finish it. No. Oh, Alyssa. Uh huh. No. (sighs) Oh. He says this. He says Uh. it's a matter for the human heart. Wow. It's a matter for the heart.
1: Well, and this is where we're going to get our discussion now. With these foundations set, you have these different worldviews emerged. We want to jump into our discussion for a little bit that we're going to have here this evening.
2: Yes, that was so interesting and I'm sure people will have lots of questions. If you do, go ahead and scan and fill out that form.
1: And some of you have Dr. Dan Keto's book which has the illustration in the very first chapter there. So it might be under your seat. You're a lucky winner oh. if you got it. Or back Behind or in front of you, seat. I guess, yeah. in front of yeah. you, in front of in you. In
2: front of your seat. Yeah,
1: so check everyone in front of your seats. Oh, we've
2: got a winner yeah. over here. Winner,
1: winner, chicken dinner. There you go, you got one. <laughs> nice. Oh, yeah. Oh, you got lucky one. day. So there's 12 books out there.
2: All right, okay. so our first question is, how does your spirituality inform the choices that you make? How does your spirituality inform the choices that you make? And the second part of that question is, is faith still relevant in the arena of everyday moral decision making?
4: Dan, you had a response. You know, following up on the concept of worldview, um, there are two possibilities for spirituality. There's rules, um, which is really the dominant uh, worldview, I think, in most churches. And so um, I I think that um, that has a certain impact on spirituality, the kind of spirituality you're going to have. And there's the others first kind of spirituality. And so depending on what set of how you look at things, you um, will your spirituality will be a consequence of that. And so you know, and 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 I think from biblical terms, you could be a Pharisee. Or you could be more Christ-like. Ultimately, it turns out to be that way. But but I would say most of us, I know I was brought up in a rules-oriented church. And I think many people here probably were brought up that way. Hey, you
1: turned out just fine, it looks like. (laughs) What? You turned out just fine. (laughs) Uh, We'll have to debate that. Miguel, you got a thought on that? Yeah, absolutely. So... uh...
3: Let's let's think a little bit about kind of how some people have argued this throughout throughout the ages. So there's three and only three primary ways of looking at these ethical uh, conversations that we have with ourselves, whether it be uh, letting a tiger eat our beloved or should I run the red light when nobody is watching. So there are three things that go, that come into play. One of those things. Uh, which Aristotle looked at, he called it teleological. And all of this has to do with the end justifies the means. So I'm gonna throw just a, cause we love doing experiments with you guys. I'm gonna throw an experiment out to you. If you could cure cancer by sacrificing 100 people, would you do it? That was way quick, man. I- what did she say? Who was that? God. We are expecting Gus. We're expecting a little bit of ethical. <laughs> okay,
1: so- Gus, you're an elder here, bro. <laughs> yeah,
3: we're gonna have to do something with that. Okay, so how many will, are are like Gus and would say I would sacrifice a hundred people in order to cure cancer?
1: I'd probably do it too. I would too.
3: Okay, so all of you who are, who have argued that are arguing in the same framework that Aristotle argues. And Aristotle says the end justifies the means, right? So you ask about what is the most beneficial thing for the most amount of people, and that's how we define our rulemaking. And so, for example, if um, if I am a woman looking and waiting for a tiger to pounce on the person I love, I would say, well, you know this this maiden that he, that is that might come out. She's, well, she, she she has a really bad attitude, and she's gonna make him miserable. And he loves me, and we are in love. And so I'd rather him die than <laughs> him find happiness anywhere else because this is the most beneficial thing for him. Congratulations, Gus and Tiger are in the same team, and all of you who would sacrifice people uh, <laughs> to cure cancer. <laughs> But that's problematic, isn't it? Because what if what if it's not a hundred people? What if it's a thousand people? What if it's a million people? What if it's ten million people? And so the question then becomes: Is there a rule that we can follow? And so those those proponents that didn't like the end justifies the mean came to, uh, came out with rule based ethics, and the fancy word for that is deontological, and that is a rule. You follow a rule. Now, the the fancy philosophers call it the categorical imperative. But in order to make it simple for us today, we can call it the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would like them to do unto you. That's a rule. That's an ethical principle that you can apply in all circumstances everywhere. And so in that case, the end doesn't justify the means. You would have to say, well, what would I prefer happen to me in this particular situation, but not just in this situation, in every situation at all times. So that's option number two. But there's a third option that we seldom talk about, and that is that inside of you, we have a moral compass. Mm. And C.S. Lewis came up with this one. And so Lewis says, think about all the societies in the world. From our society to the tiger society to the society where it's okay to sacrifice people for the benefit of a cancer cure. All of these societies have, have a moral compass that is guiding them because there is no society in which cowardice, um, lying, these moral, these moral imperatives that we already have, there's no society that celebrates it. There's no society that says, hey, lying is a good thing. So what Lewis says is that the majority of our, of our ethical conversations are actually, except when, do, when is an exception to the rule permissible? And I think that brings us back to this idea of what happens when I start operating on the principle or on the worldview of others first.
1: I don't know if that's helpful. Absolutely. I wonder what if we were to answer the second part of this, because some people here, we're getting so many responses uh, about your incredible illustration that you two have kind of created and uh, brought out. But I'm wondering to what degree some of these questions are asking, do our experiences, good or bad, influence the worldview and in particular as a believer can that change based on the experience or the situation that you're in? Can I choose one of these other different worldview positions? Um, could I maybe move through the three that, that uh, Miguel just brought up? How is it that these experiences shape us as believers and kind of move us through these different worldview perspectives? Could you, could you kind of bring a little bit on, on that?
4: Well, you know, if you look at three of the worldviews, you know, feelings, rules, uh, at least as we're describing it right now, the Pharisee type of rules, and me first. If you look at the underlying motivation, it's all self-interest. And, and, and if you look at general economic theory on how we make decisions, it's the general theory is self-interest. And the pursuit of happiness, as they define it, is always based on self-interest. So all economic models are based upon self-interest. Uh, they don't take into account uh, others first. Maybe it's because it's too small a group that, that, that when they do their studies, they they just sort of say there's not enough of them to make a difference. But I think that the um, illustration that Elissa was putting out in, in talking about worldviews, that others' first worldview, the father, uh, is really um, the, the, the the difference because he is not motivated by self-interest. He's motivated by what's good for other people, which is the golden rule. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think we can rationalize a lot in justifying our self-interest. And I think when you... When you talk to people with um, rules, especially rules people, when they're doing something crazy, you know, um, I, mean, I, I think one of the great illustrations is um, when slavery was um, here in, in the United States. Uh, the justification for slavery was, well, you know, these poor heathens um, can benefit from our Christian Christ, Christianity, and, and so you know, it, and, and how do we justify war? Um, you know, it, it's sort of crazy that we as Christians um, sometimes are quite happy with war. You know, when, uh, you know, I, I think Christ, I can't see Christ sort of saying, let's go to war. Uh, um, so, you know, it, it is interesting how we can warp ourselves if we have our self-interest, if we're thinking about our self-interest. and 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 I'm not pointing to other people, I'm thinking about myself. Uh, at times, um,
2: um. I have a question. After hearing all of these, this great discussion, it makes me think. Do you think these worldviews that we've presented, can you experience them all of them throughout your life, or do you think it's more something that is natural to your personality or your experiences, or do you think it's possible to go through maybe a me first? worldview, and grow from that into a rules, and then grow from that into a others. Um, and, and on top of that, what do you think most influences
0: a person's worldview? Um, it's Kelly? Yes. I think it's interesting that you should talk about progression. I think what happens when we've looked at this statistically, we found that people are not just one worldview, So they may, may be feelings, me, feelings, rules, rules, me. Um, sometimes even feelings, others, you know? So they've been combinations. So whether or not they're m- progressing to what we would consider, I think, would be a higher ideal, which would be others first, or whether that's just how it is, that we are not singly, solidly one particular worldview. But I would venture to say, if we look at the uh, what God tells us, what Jesus tells us in the New Testament, I think it's pretty clear that it's always others first. It's always others first. So how do we accomplish that? And um, <clears throat> You know, for the longest time, I don't know how many of you believe in the Holy Spirit, you know? Okay, we got (laughs) to, all right. Um, But for the longest time, I sort of dismissed the Holy Spirit from my life. I don't think I did it deliberately, but I just didn't understand that I, that the Holy Spirit is dwelling in me, that I am capable to access his or her powers for good, and that I should be guided by something beyond money, power, sex, whatever, you know, that I should be guided by other principles. And so when I became more aware that there, that I had the Holy Spirit in me, that that I thought was God's gift to all of us, how can we change? Now, uh, I'm carrying on a little bit too much, but I used to think, you know, it's impossible, God, for me to change. How can you expect us to change? How do you expect a person to be converted? Until I started learning more about the brain, thanks to my husband, who can tell you all about neuroplasticity, but your brain can change. And... As far as I'm concerned, the Bible doesn't know about the brain. It keeps talking about the heart, the heart, because that term wasn't around, you know. But it's really the brain that God has given us and its ability to change in all kinds of ways. From an aneurysm that you have, it creates other paths, provided you survive the aneurysm. I guess I'm talking like you know, like I'm my husband, but we've been married for a long time, so I pick up a few things. But. But, re- but really, I think that God has given us the brain. That's where it all happens, you know? That's where conversion happens.
1: So are you saying that if we were in a perfect society, we would be in others' first society, and we would all be making our ethical, moral decisions based on the best interests of others I, 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 without consideration to the rules that might govern us? Or is others first the rule?
4: Well, well I, I, I'd I like to suggest that none of us here on earth can naturally be others first. It's a high energy state. And I think unless the Holy Spirit uh, is willing to pump energy into our whole being, we cannot exist in that state. Uh, the other, other thing I wanted to say is the... Idea that that is there sort of an evolutionary process that we go through, and and some of you know about Kohlberg's different stages of moral, moral development. I totally reject that, and I and I say this um, because I think that's a perfect example of an evolutionary theory. It it is an evolutionary theory, and you know, and Kohlberg himself uh, sa- says. Um, hardly anyone reaches the sixth stage that he has. Well, um, it's because people with different worldviews can't get up there. And all he's describing are these different major worldviews. And and three out of the four are just dead ends. Um, It's only the people that have the right worldview to start out with that can achieve um, th- th- those highest planes. You can't get there sort of in an evolutionary process. Mm. You either are going to accept that concept and grow, and let the Holy Spirit grow you, mm. or y- you're going to be stuck in a dead end wow. and end up in un- unpleasant places. Wow. So I, I reject Kohlberg's theory, and the reason why I do it is he himself would say it's an evolutionary theory. Hmm. And evolutionary theories inherently... Can't be right.
1: Oh, wow. 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 Because these theories, in your opinion, would be seeking what is, for me, the best at the expense of others.
4: Right. right. Okay.
0: Wow. Survival of the fittest. Survival of
1: the fittest. Miguel, you were going to say something, and then I had a question on truth and how it relates to worldview and pluralism.
3: Yeah. So if, if you just look at it uh, functionally, right, friends, there is a problem, maybe not scientific. And we had scientists here last week. Um, but as, as as you're thinking about ethics, there is a foundational problem with evolution. Because evolution does two things. It says, it, it, first, in evo- any evolutionary process, there's a lot of waste, right? So the majority of whatever organism you're looking at has to die in order for very few that are well-adapted organisms alive. For them to live. But there is the ethical question of might makes right. And what I find really appealing about scripture is that a lot of people, uh, particularly in the field of ethics or philosophy or anthropology or sociology, they look at scripture and they say, well, that is a ancient book written by a bunch of People who are struggling, and it's a patriarchal society, and there's a lot of brokenness. And to be sure, there is. There are issues in Scripture. But what I find really, really interesting is that Scripture presents a model that is completely different. Mm. Scripture says, might doesn't make right. Scripture says, if you want to be first, Then you need to be last. Mm. Scripture says you need to look at people with inherent value. Mm. And I think a lot of the ethical problems in our cultural milieu are because we get really good at dehumanizing people that we disagree with. Mm. And because we don't look at people, we end up looking at positions, it's really easy to commit violence against people. And not only is it easy to commit violence against people, but it's really easy to be incoherent and inconsistent with your ethical framework. So let me give you a really simple example. There's a big ethical debate going on in our country right now. Anyone know what that, what that ethical debate is? Abortion. It just passed. Okay, abortion. so abortion. So the ethical debate is the 0 sum game, right? Either you're pro-choice or you're pro-life. Here's what's fascinating about it. Most of the people that would identify as pro-life also identify as pro-death penalty. Mm. Most of the people that identify as pro-life are also advocating that you remove early education allowance for mothers of newborn babies. Health care. Most of these people that are pro-life are, are, are also against universal health care. So there is this disconnect, right, between, uh, between me saying I am pro-something when it comes to... A particular situation and then actually living out my moral reality in a way that is inconsistent and I think what scripture points you to is it points you to have a framework that is consistent and the consistency is when I make a decision any moral decision is the question how does this benefit not me But those around me? How does Mm. this benefit those around me? How do I look at other people as
1: people and not as positions? Mm. Wow. That's really good. I think that this is such a challenging topic. We've gotten so many questions. I think we answered or asked only two of the, it keeps going, like 30 uh, or 40, 50 questions here. But I do want to just bring up this one last question. This will be kind of our final one before the evening. How do we deal with the issue of truth in an others-focused worldview perspective? Because we live today in a pluralistic world, multiplicity of religions, ideologies even within a Christian household with different perspectives and things. How do you even have this idea of truth in a pluralistic world? How does that work? If we're supposed to be others-focused, does truth really even have a hold on anyone if I define truth so differently from my neighbor?
4: Um, I claim to be a neuroscientist. And I think one of the really disturbing things uh, that I've found as a physician and as a neuroscientist is every theory that I had when I started medical school has been proven wrong. It's always something new comes up five years later or a decade later. So, you know, all this stuff about science being, quotes, the the source of truth uh, hasn't worked out so great. Mm. Um, On the flip side, um, and I I think if you look in the book, there's a sort of divide in what you have, you know, me first, rules first, and, and feelings first. If you look at that, that's all self-interest. I mean, that's all based on me. And so I think all human observations are going to be only partially true. On the flip side, if you look at the others, others first, you're looking at an external person who's saying this is true. And if, if, if it's a Christian system, you, God is telling you this is truth. The golden rule is truth. Mm-hmm. I, am, I am the truth. I am the way. It's an ex- external thing. And, and then the, the question for us then is, as we try it, is it really truth? But, but to me, I tell people, the only thing that's really stood up to me, and I'm really grateful that I took biblical theology one and two, because the great principles that they taught me about the nature of God and nature of man, um, I still use the same principles. you know, they, They've held up really well. And so to me, I think truth has to be, if, if it's real truth, I don't think we as humans are capable of coming to something that is absolutely truth. I think it has to be external. and And, and I think that there's no better source than the God, the Christian God. That
2: is beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. This has been such a thought-provoking discussion. I'm just here absorbing all of the information from you three. Can we give a big round of applause to our panelists today? Thank you so much for being here tonight. Pastor Miguel, Dr. Dan, Dr. Alyssa. Just the insight that you guys bring and all the questions that we have, we can go over afterwards if you want to look at it as well. But just the insight that you bring and the value of how we can how, how we can, in our modern-day society, have a hand in both truth and spirituality and moralistic decisions. And I think what we've discussed tonight will continue the conversation, as maybe we can discuss within the next few moments as we go out to Afterglow, just a little plug in there. Um, but thank you so much for, for your insight and for all that you've shared tonight.
1: And where do people get the book? Uh, This is a big fundraiser as well for the center, I understand. And we want to know, how do we get this book? What's the title exactly? I didn't share that this evening.
0: How to make your choices better than chance. You remember early on I said it was 50-50? It really is just 50-50 unless unless you're going to use some other principles to make your choices. Mm. So the book is not such a big fundraiser. But the center that I direct at La Sierra University is um, is self-supporting. So um, basically, I raise all the money for its operation. And one small revenue is my husband's book. So, so you can buy it on Amazon for $14.99, or you can buy it from the center from me for $10. Oh, wow.
3: Well, thank I you that so
0: one. much. I'd like,
3: to, I'd like to propose that we have it under a, a they, they make a choice, so they click a button and either
1: it's $10 or it's $500. <laughs> well, this evening we're grateful for this discussion that started. We really believe that each one of you is going to be called to make choices throughout this life. And my prayer is that you would not only choose an other's first uh, perspective, just when it You think it'll suit you best, but that that might be the disposition you choose every single day of your life. And we believe as believers that this starts in grounding yourself in Scripture, knowing the Holy Spirit, knowing Jesus as your Savior. And so tonight, put a hand on someone next to you as we pray and conclude our evening together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for my friends who are here. Thank you for the blessing it is to be part of a Christian community Lord, but also thank you so much that there might be people here and others watching who are wondering, you know, I'm not a Christian. Uh, These worldviews are really challenging. They're different. I have different ideas. But, Lord, we thank you that you call us to be into community with one another and debate and talk and love one another. And, Father, we also pray that you might bless our friends who are out here tonight making big decisions, making big life-changing decisions, And, Lord, we pray over the Christian leaders and those who don't believe in you and know you, God, that you would bless them as they make decisions for nations and world leaders and our denomination and around this world, Father. But, Father, we also pray that you would help us tonight as we make decisions about our personal lives and what it is that you're calling us to do in this season and time. In Jesus' name. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the Night Church Podcast. We really are excited for where we're going and you can help us in that mission. There's a few things that you can do. Number one is just stay connected. So if you wanna follow up what's going on in the young adult ministry here at Loma Linda University Church, follow us on Instagram at Praxis Ministry. And then the other way to really build from this is to financially contribute. Your donations make such a big impact. And so if you go to LLUC.org give, you can connect with Praxis Ministry there. On a one-time gift or a reoccurring commitment, it makes such a difference. Well, we love you, care for you, and may God bless you richly as you take theory and make it into practice.